calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. tell you how it began, but I don't know how it began. Or when it began, for that matter. And I suspect that nobody else does, either. But what I can tell you is my experience. And my experience was this. I was laying in bed one morning, awake but hardly conscious, still shaking the fog of sleep out of my mind, when I became subtly aware that my phone was ringing. I answered and heard the voice of my cousin. He was agitated, nearly breathless. I didn't catch everything, he said, but at one point I heard him say that his house was tilting. I tried to follow his blathering stream of consciousness, but I could gather nothing else. He was too distressed, and I was too tired for either of us to understand each other. Listen, I said, just relax, I'll come over. As I drove over to his house, I wondered what he might have been referring to on the phone. His house was tilting? What did that mean? Perhaps a crack had formed in the house's foundation after one of the recent earthquakes. The great concrete slab had shifted, tilting the house off its axis. If that was the case, I could see why he'd be upset. The house was brand new. For him, anyway. It had been a purchase of mixed emotions. Just six months before he bought the house, my cousin, Oscar, lost his father. Uncle Dietrich had been the last remaining family member of our parents' generation. 
My father had died some years before, and neither of us had ever known our mothers. If we had any grandparents, we had never heard about them or met them. It was just the four of us, and then it was just the three of us, and now it was just me and Oscar. The silver lining, if you could call it that, was that Oscar inherited a decent sum of money from his father, money enough to buy the house he'd always wanted. It was situated atop a bluff overlooking a rocky canyon that led to Graymar Lake a few hundred yards to the west. The house could be seen from Highway 40 as it traced the shore of the lake, and Oscar had been enamored with it for as long as either of us could remember. Every time we drove by, he would stare at it, ostensibly daydreaming about being its owner. I'm not sure what it was about the house that he found so alluring. He just seemed to be drawn to it. He chose it at a very young age and never let go. Though, he would tell me later that it felt more like the house had chosen him. It was a two-story structure, and when you looked at it from a distance, it seemed to be made entirely of windows, which, given the lakeside view it offered, made sense. The shape was severe and jagged, reminiscent of the modernist floor plans that took over Beverly Hills in the 1950s. I never learned when the house was built. It was just always there. As far as I can think back, I can't recall ever seeing a sign that anyone lived in it. There were never any lights on. I never saw anyone moving about on the property. I didn't know anything about the house, really, other than the fact that my cousin Oscar dreamed of owning it. And then, in the wake of his father's unfortunate death, he finally could. Oscar inquired with a local realtor about the house's availability and was surprised to find that the house was not only for sale, but that its asking price was very reasonable. He made an offer, allocating his inheritance to use as a down payment. The following day, the offer was accepted. And a month later, in the beginning of 2018, he began to move in. He soon found that he didn't have nearly enough furniture to fill the place, being as it was nearly double the size of the house he'd moved out of. But that didn't seem to bother him. He could take care of all that in time, he said. He planned on being there for a while. On that morning, when he called me and said that his house was tilting, he had been living there for only two weeks. It was barely enough time for him to get unpacked and start settling in. As I approached, I prepared to find him livid, prepared to find some element of structural damage to the property. But as I rounded the last of the meandering curves that led to the lonely house, I saw it the same as I always had, stark and imposing, but presenting no lack of structural integrity. The roof still had its gentle slope, the windows were still shining and intact, and the walls still stood at sheer right angles. I knocked on the front door, and soon after, I could see Oscar's approaching figure through the bay window. He looked thinner than he had the last time I'd seen him, but otherwise appeared to be himself. He opened the door and invited me inside. He looked tired, had a glint of something concerning in his eyes. But he didn't seem as erratic or hysterical as he did on the phone. I walked in and poured myself a cup of coffee from the carafe that stood steaming on the counter. As I sat down across from him at the kitchen table, he began to speak. It looks normal, huh, he said. I look normal? 
You look thinner, I said, taking a sip of coffee. But, yeah, the house looks fine. I gazed around the wide, airy kitchen, fixing my eyes on the steel and concrete framework of the house. It looked normal to me at first, too, he went on. But then one day I noticed something. The house came with a few pieces of furniture. I decided not to get rid of it since I only had so much furniture of my own. And some of the leftover stuff was actually pretty nice. There was this one piece in the upstairs room, a navy blue armchair. I wanted to get it reupholstered. So I unscrewed the metal feet on the bottom. I took off the fabric cover. When I returned from the furniture store with the new cover for the chair, I slipped it on and set about screwing the metal feet back on the bottom of the chair. And that's when it happened. Each of the chair's four feet had three screws to hold them in place. I had set the four feet and the twelve screws in the corner of the room, and I found them there untouched when I returned. But somehow, when I had gotten all the feet screwed back in, I still had a screw left over. I looked at the feet, expecting to find that I'd miss one, but all twelve screws were there, securing the feet to the chair, and a thirteenth screw was right there in the palm of my hand. I thought the whole event through from start to finish, trying to account for the extra screw. Had it been taped to the bottom of the chair? Was it meant to be used as a spare in case one of the screws goes missing? Did it come from some other part of the chair, or a different piece of furniture altogether? Every time I think it through, I still can't figure it out. I started with the chair. It had twelve screws in the bottom of it. I took it apart and put it back together, and now I have an extra. How does that happen, Landon? Screws don't just appear out of nowhere. He lifted his eyes and I followed them to the kitchen counter, where the mystery screw was sitting. It had a shiny metallic color, and its edges were blunt. I squinted at it, wondering where it had come from. But while I found the predicament curious, I still felt obliged to maintain a voice of reason. Sometimes things like that just happen, Oscar. We've all lost socks in the dryer. Things go missing, they reappear, it's no cause for concern. Oscar nodded, biting his lips subtly. He gazed absently out at Graymar Lake through the kitchen window. I began to wonder if something was eating at him. If the events that led to him buying the house made him feel guilty or otherwise disturbed. If those emotions were behind his reaction to the mystery screw. As I watched him, his expression transformed. He shut his eyes and gripped the sides of his chair as if he felt like something was trying to shake him out of it. Oscar, I said, are you okay? He held his eyes tightly shut, seeming to concentrate, as if trying to hear a very faint noise. Landon, he said, I know this is going to sound crazy, but how many walls does this room have? I squinted at him wondering what could have provoked such a question, then turned and surveyed the walls of the kitchen. Five, I said. There was the west-facing wall, which had a door in it through which we had entered. There was the north-facing wall, against which the stove and refrigerator sat. There was an east-facing wall, which held a large window overlooking the lake. And then there were two walls that faced to the south, connected to each other at a broad angle making the room bow out in a wide, pentagonal shape. 
Oscar, I said. Why did you want to know how many walls there are in your kitchen? Why can't you just open your eyes and see for yourself? It took him a while to answer this question, and when he finally did, it was in a voice almost too faint to hear. Because, he said, because sometimes when I look there isn't five walls. There's seven. That's impossible, I said. I promise you. Look. He slowly drew his eyelids open and swiveled his head around. A kind of relief seemed to fall over his features, but nothing about the situation put me at ease. How about I go home and pack a few things so I can come stay here with you for a few days? Would that be okay? I hardly got the words out before his face flushed red. I could see that he was humiliated at the suggestion. I don't need... Okay, I said, fine. It's just been a tough road for you the last couple months, and I want to make sure you're all right. But he wouldn't have any of it. Perhaps he was just too proud. Sympathy had always made him uncomfortable, I knew. But how did he expect me to react? He had called me over there, had told me about screws appearing out of thin air, about rooms changing their shape. My offer to look over him was what anyone in their right mind would have done. I appreciate it, he said, finally getting to his feet. I don't need you to do anything. I just... I guess I just needed to tell somebody. He paused for a moment, and then, with a peculiar look in his eye, he said, Besides... When you spend enough time in this house, it ceases to matter how you got here. I stewed on the comment for a moment, but by the time I rose to ask him what it meant, he had already left the room. For the following few days, I checked in on Oscar when I got off work. He still seemed agitated and perturbed, but as far as he told me, that was the extent of it. If he was still experiencing this strange phenomenon, he kept it to himself. When what came next occurred, though, I found myself wishing he had told me something. I wished he'd spoken to me, even if he'd said something unbelievable. Because that would have been better than what did happen. Although, what happened exactly, I don't know. I don't have the events themselves, I only have their absence. All that is known to me, as well as the county sheriff is that sometime in the morning on the 7th of April, Oscar disappeared. He left behind no note, no sign of struggle, of foul play. I had checked in on him the night before and found him somber but stable, at least by appearance. And when I returned to bring him lunch the following day, his house was empty. His car, his keys, his cell phone and his wallet, as well as the rest of his known possessions, were all there at the house. Everything was accounted for, except for Oscar. The police began an investigation, and being as I was Oscar's only living family, suspicion was at first cast upon me. But when the police found me to be honest and forthcoming, and were able to uncover no evidence to suggest otherwise, they focused their investigation on other theories, like willful disappearance or suicide but in the end, they were unable to conclusively say what happened to Oscar. He had simply slipped out of existence, as far as they could tell. 
The only thing we had that offered any sort of insight into Oscar's disappearance was a collection of notes and journal entries in which he described a series of strange encounters that allegedly took place at his house. In the first, which is a note scribbled on the back of a wrinkled shopping list and estimated to have been written eight days before his disappearance, Oscar wrote the following. C2, no trespassing sign, and buy doorbell video camera. Strange man came to house today, asked him what he wanted. He said, everyone lives in the ground eventually, but when you live in this house, you live in the ground right now. He was laughing, excited. Need security. Don't let him come back. When the police had first uncovered the note, I asked them if they thought the strange man it referred to might have been involved in Oscar's disappearance. But, because of the journal entries that proceeded, they were skeptical of the notion that the man even existed. In the next document, a journal entry written six days before his vanishing, Oscar wrote in a slightly more controlled hand, though the content of his writing was no less disturbing. It seemed as though he was in the process of coming to terms with his crumbling reality. He explains that the security measures he had taken played no role in preventing further trespassing. With an unnerving sense of normalcy, he writes about the visitors he is seeing, not only on the grounds of his property, but inside his house as well. He refers to them as though they're not entirely material. They seem like fleeting things, figures he catches out of the corner of his eye when he looks down a hallway or at the corner of a darkened room. But any time he tries to focus his vision directly on them, they seem to disappear or hide behind something. Mixed in with these episodes, he writes about things that of course did happen, although maybe not the way he remembered them. For example, in his record of my going over to his house that first time, he claims that when he closed his eyes and asked me to count the walls of his kitchen, I told him there was seven walls, but that scared him because sometimes he saw five walls. In reality, his kitchen has and always has had five walls, which is the same number I told him when he asked. In the final journal entry, which is also the most eerie of them, Oscar wonders if the figures he's seeing are the products of his house's dreams. He admits to himself that he doesn't know how or why a house would dream, but he couldn't abandon the idea of the sentience coursing through that structure. This place has created many faces, he wrote. Among them, of course, is mine. I have seen it. It was only for a second, but it was there. In the pale light of the moon, hunched in the bathroom, looking back at me. I wondered what the experience must have been like for Oscar. I, myself, have never seen someone whose face is an exact replication of my own. But I have a feeling that if I did, something would break in me. Something would come unhinged at the realization that the rules I thought applied to this world don't really exist. That is, if what he saw was really there. Like the rest of the visitors, the doppelganger that Oscar saw in his bathroom may have been a mere figment of his imagination. 
and, given the fact that there was never any sign of a break-in, of an intrusion or any other sort of tampering with the property, I could see why the police had concluded that Oscar's visitors were hallucinatory. In the following weeks, I spent more and more time at the house. While the notes and journal entries may have offered some insight into Oscar's mindset leading up to his vanishing, they didn't offer any answers as to where he had gone. I wanted to find my cousin, and I felt oddly certain that something inside that house would get me closer to doing that. So, I set up a kind of headquarters there. I plastered flyers around town, and I set up a hotline that people could call if they had any tips. Meanwhile, I scoured the residence for more clues, but that effort was ultimately fruitless. Being that Oscar had only lived in the house for two weeks and had few possessions to begin with, nothing he kept in the house was of any further help. On a whim, I decided to do some research on the property, wondering if anything noteworthy had occurred there before. I wasn't sure what anything from the past would do to help in my search for Oscar, but I decided to look into it all the same. It was like there was something pulling at me, some inexplicable need within me to get closer to the property, to understand it, to see in its past something that would reveal its true nature. What I found was something I was entirely unprepared for. Through some digging in local archives, I discovered the records of a series of events that occurred near the property not 200 years before. In the mid-1800s, the part of Utah where Oscar's house was built was almost entirely unpopulated. Boomtowns popped up in a few nearby areas when someone struck gold or silver, but no long-term communities were established. A few temporary encampments were set up, though, when there was work to be done. A bridge would be built to connect two disparate cities, or a river would be dammed to create a reservoir, way out off the beaten path. And so the workers and their families would erect a small village, sustaining them until the project was done. One such encampment was started by a man named Oliver Cassell. Cassell, who had worked briefly as an engineer, camped out in the area while on a hunting trip. When he was there, he was enticed by an idea. If he could bore a tunnel through the mountains on the eastern side of the lake, the northbound train line that ran through the area wouldn't have to take its meandering detour around the western side of the lake. He began pitching the idea to businesses that could stand to profit from the shortened journey, and soon found a host of eager investors. Even Union Pacific was on board with the project. By 1863, Cassell had hired several hundred workers, from project managers to heavy machinery operators. In the spring, they broke ground. Boring for the Graymar Passage began, just across the lake from Oscar's house. And for a while, things went smoothly. So smooth, in fact, that the progress was almost uncanny. There were no reported deaths and no record of any of the machines breaking down both feats that, at the time, were virtually unheard of for a project of that magnitude. However, while the operation itself was going fine, Cassell was beginning a strange decline. It was reported that his behavior grew more eccentric as the project went on. After several weeks of commendable progress, he began to claim that the project was being guided by the hand of God. 
He was quoted as saying that nothing could stand in his way. No earthly force could prevent him from finishing the tunnel. The most revealing records of Cassell come from one of his chief engineers. The two apparently got quite close, and the engineer documented many of their official correspondences. In one of their communications, Cassell wrote, There's something remarkable in this ground, something humankind knows nothing about. I can feel it as I stand here. It's right down there, beneath my feet. It's trying to tell me something. That is why I'm drilling this tunnel. Not to make an easy penny for the Union Pacific Railroad Company, but to get closer to whatever it is down there, under all that rock and earth. On the day that the tunnel was finished, the village planned a celebration to commemorate the completion. The workers and their families would organize at the mouth of the tunnel, where they would board train cars and take an inaugural trip through the passage. When they emerged from the end of the tunnel, a parade would lead them into town where they would attend a banquet. Only Cassell couldn't reserve enough passenger cars for everyone to take the first journey through the tunnel together. So, about a third of the population, mostly working fathers that wanted to give their children and wives the excitement of being among the first to ride through the tunnel, boarded a ferry and rode across the lake to meet the train at its destination. The ferry was the first to arrive, so the men departed the boat and walked into the village where the parade was set to begin. As they stood there, several of the onlookers reported hearing a low whistle emanating from the mouth of the tunnel. They grew concerned that one of the train cars had malfunctioned, but a moment later, the excited villagers emerged from the darkness of the tunnel, cheering through the windows of the train car as they pulled into the small village station. As the two groups reunited, a bizarre conviction came over those that had foregone the tunnel ride. There is no clear indication as to who first used a term like changeling or copy or double, but in the days following the celebration, the workers that had ridden over on the ferry became convinced that everyone who had taken that first tunnel ride emerged slightly changed. A pipe threader named Mason Klein reported that his son no longer had a series of freckles on his left earlobe. A pump operator claimed his wife was several inches taller than she'd been before she'd entered the tunnel. One of the dump truck drivers said only that his children had different eyes. A kind of silent hysteria seemed to come over the town. Three days later, it was unanimously agreed that everyone who rode through the tunnel the first time would gather to ride back through it in the other direction. Their reasons for doing this are never made entirely clear, but from what I could gather, they seemed to believe that sending the group back through the way they had come would reverse the changes they'd apparently undergone. Some of the more ardent believers seemed to have a more permanent solution in mind, however. When the train was halfway through its journey back, a bundle of dynamite detonated in a crevice above the tunnel. The explosion triggered a massive cave-in, burying the train and all its passengers deep inside the mountain. No indication is given as for who may have been responsible for the detonation, only the widely expressed belief that the event was not an accident. 
There was a brief investigation, though it was nowhere near as thorough as it should have been, after which the occupants sealed off both ends of the tunnel and disbanded, as if nothing had ever happened there. There was never any major publicity given to the event, which may have been because the companies that funded it preferred it that way. Or, I wondered to myself as I sat in the dim archive, was this disaster neglected by investigators and forgotten from history because there's something in the ground near Graymar Lake that people don't want to talk about? Something that showed its dreams to Oscar before he disappeared. Something quiet and foreign. Something that hasn't showed its face to the world in a very long time. When I got back home from the archive, that is to say, when I got back to Oscar's house from the archive, I'm not sure when I started thinking of his residence as my home, I set my thermos down and slumped into a chair at the kitchen table. I gazed out the window at Graymar Lake, its shimmering waves reflecting on the walls of the heptagonal room. I thought about Oliver Cassell and about the thing he claimed to be searching for in those hills. My eyes studied the rolling hills at the shore of the lake, searching for the spot where the tunnel was sealed shut. But 159 years is more than enough time for vegetation to take over. Trees and shrubs had grown, and the rocks had reclaimed their usual mossy texture. The place had cleansed itself. It had started anew, adopting a peaceful, inviting atmosphere hoping to coax some new traveler into staying, into participating in the life cycle of some unknowable intelligence, some ancient infection that resided there, unseen. After all, it wasn't the lake or the hillside that had had its way with Oliver Cassell, just like it wasn't the house that had had its way with Oscar. It was something that had become enmeshed in the fabric of that whole place Something not unlike blight. Some kind of pathogenic organism that squirmed its way into that habitat a long time ago. How can I be sure of any of that, you wonder? The answer is, I can't. Not with any real level of certainty, anyway. I only know what the visitors tell me. When it's quiet and the night is dark, and they whisper their secrets to the shifting walls of the house. I can sense them, can feel them there, and I know that somewhere among them, there's a face that looks just like mine. It's the face that I can hear most clearly when I listen to the walls at night. It's the face that makes me wonder if I'm the me I've always been, or the me that this place created. The me that killed my cousin to claim his house. Or the me that simply moved in to try and find him when he went missing. Although, I suppose, after a certain point, it doesn't really matter. That's one thing Oscar was right about, if nothing else. He was right about the fact that when you spend enough time in this house, it ceases to matter how you got here.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.